This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Rivka Basim Ravram. May her soul merit an ascendancy in heaven. If you would like to sponsor a Parsha podcast, or if you have any questions or comments, or if you just want to say hi, please email me at rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Parsha's Kedoshim only has two chapters, chapter 19 and 20 of Leviticus, 64 verses, but it contains 51 different mitzvos, including some of the most famous ones of the Torah. And in fact, it has the highest mitzvah density of any parsha in the Torah, the most mitzvos per verse. And the parsha begins, the Shem is to Moshe, saying, Speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel and tell to them you should be holy, for holy am I, Hashem, your God. The parsha begins with an instruction Moshe tells the whole Jewish people, be holy because Hashem is holy. Now, Rashi right away notices that there's a few extra words that don't usually appear in this kind of verse. You know, the most common verse in the Torah, Hashem said to Moshe, go tell the Jewish people, and Moshe goes and tells it to the Jewish people. But here it doesn't say, go tell the Jewish people. It says, speak to the entire assembly. It adds a few words. Why does it embellish the fact that Moshe speaks the entirety of the Jewish people, the whole congregation? So Rashi tells us that this Torah section was said in front of the entirety of the Jewish people. It was a convention. Everyone got together and everyone was there, men, women, and children, because this is so important. This parsha, this section of the Torah is so important because the majority, the bulk of the Torah is contingent upon this portion and therefore, it was said in front of everyone. Now, it's not so clear why this particular parsha contains the majority of the Torah. So maybe we could perhaps suggest, if you look at verse 18, it's one of the most famous verses in the whole Torah, and that is to love your fellow as yourself. And the Talmud tells us that that particular verse is encapsulatory of the entirety of the Torah. So maybe one could suggest that the reason why we're told that this is so central, it has to be said in front of the entire of the Jewish people because the whole Torah hinges upon it that is related to that verse, which the Talmud tells us is a verse that includes all of Torah, perhaps. Now, the Zohar tells us something very interesting. The Zohar tells us that when the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, when they arrived at this particular verse, when they read it, they rejoiced. And it's not so clear as to why this verse in particular, the first verse in our Parsha, you should be holy for I am holy. Why is that a verse that evokes joy? So maybe we could suggest that, well, the essence of the verse is a very powerful idea. God is telling the Jewish people, you should be like me. That's the argument here. That's the offer on the table. God saying, I'm holy, but you could be like me, which is an amazing idea. Alternatively, we can maybe suggest that holiness, what does holiness mean? In other religions, holiness is synonymous with celibacy, with asceticism, perhaps with adopting a monastic lifestyle, going away from civilizations, living on a mountaintop, removing yourself from this world. And in Judaism, what do we see? The verse tells us, be holy, but how does it begin? Everyone got together. Speak to the entirety of the congregation of the assembly of the, of the Jewish people and tell them to be holy. Even amidst civilization, together all as one, you don't need to eschew this world. You don't need to reject 
society. You don't need to live a monastic life for you to be holy. Now, what exactly does holiness even mean? It seems like it's kind of a fuzzy, abstract idea that we seem to not necessarily have very concrete, clear guidelines as to what constitutes holy, so holiness. So Rashi tells us that holiness is synonymous with modesty. Whenever someone is separated from forbidden sexual relations, that's where you find holiness. Now, there's a Ramban who kind of elaborates on this point, a very famous Ramban, maybe the most famous comment of Ramban on the entire Torah, and he kind of expands this idea of holiness while acknowledging that it's somewhat fuzzy, but he explains that that's, in fact, by design. And he introduces an interesting concept. He says, you know, you look at the Torah, Leviticus, we've read all kinds of prohibitions, all kinds of people we can't be with intimately, all kinds of foods that are banned. But of course, there are people that we can be with, our wives. If someone has many wives, he even says, you could have women that are that are permitted to you. And if the meat's kosher, if the wine's kosher, well, it's it's permitted. So what's going to be? You have someone who wants to obey the Torah. And they follow the letter of the law with precision, with fastidiousness. Everything they eat, everything that they spend their time with, everything is totally sanctioned by the rules of the Torah. But what do they do? Their whole life, they're immersed in pursuit of carnal pleasure, in pursuit of physical pleasure. They become, in his words, a glutton, a heathen, and all with the permission of the Torah. Everything is kosher. The women that he's with are permitted to him. The food, the meat, the wine that he's eating, it's all 100% kosher. What do you have? You have someone who is a total glutton, but it's all with the permission of Torah. And therefore, says the Ramban, what does it mean to be holy? It means to not lose sight of the overarching message of the Torah with all the details. It's like they, they say about the person who sees all the trees but misses the forest. There's all these laws that we've read, but what's the bottom line message? The bottom line message is to be holy, to be someone who is oriented around pursuit of spiritual goals, the spiritual agenda, identifying with the soul, being more similar to God. Yes, there's laws, and yes, those laws are immutable. And those things are not ones that we could disregard. We can't just say, you know what, we'll follow the overarching message and disregard the laws. But we can't go the opposite direction either. We can't say, you know, we'll just follow the letter of the law and miss out in the overarching message. And therefore, and therefore, says the Ramban, after the Torah delineates all the specific prohibitions of the Torah, it gives us a general rule that even when things are permitted, we should develop restraint to not be someone who is totally immersed in pursuit of physical and carnal pleasures. We should be holy. We should focus on holiness in pursuit of the spiritual agenda. And he goes on to detail. What does that mean? With respect to intercourse, he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Torah scholars shouldn't be with their wives like roosters. And in fact, in Talmudic parlance, the rooster is considered the animal that is most submerged in pursuit of carnal pleasure. And therefore, even though it's permitted, it's your wife after all, permitted, still the Talmud tells us that we should not be 
people that are always together with our wives, even when it's permitted. Similarly, with wine, it's kosher wine, 100% kosher, fantastic. But if that's your pursuit, then you're missing the boat. You're missing the overarching message of the Torah. And in fact, he talks about the Nazir. The Nazir is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow to not drink wine for 30 days to focus instead on spirituality. And he talks about Lot and Noah, both episodes in Genesis that talk about people, great people, who were drinking wine and bad things happened to them as a result. Even with respect to impurity, we're told even though you're not a Cohen, you don't necessarily have the strict, rigid restrictions against becoming impure, still live a more spiritually uplifted life. Your mouth, says the Ramban, you could use it for bad speech, you could use it for gluttony, or you could develop restraint, you could develop self-control, you become more holy. And that's the general outlook here. When you first were told the details, and then were given the general principle, and this pattern follows itself. He quotes in the book of Deuteronomy, we read about many laws related to interpersonal matters, to monetary matters. And then it says, again, a very fuzzy, opaque verse, You should do what's straight, what's proper, and what is good. And again, that seems to be not very easily defined. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to do what's right, what's proper? And the answer is, like like we've said previously, it means to be a mensch. It means not to just say, you know what, I'm going to find all the loopholes that I can that are permitted by Torah. It means to act above and beyond the letter of the law, to add in a, to act in a proper moral fashion, but in, in ways that are not detailed necessarily in the Torah. There is a line that people say that the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, is broken down into four general categories, but there's the fifth category that's not written. And that is to be a mensch, to have derech These are terms in Hebrew, meaning to be someone who does what's right, even if it's not written specifically and explicitly. Similarly, a third example of this, we have the laws of Shabbat, the 39 categories of work, all the things that are prohibited. And then we're told, tishbot, you should rest, which is a general idea, the general concept that shouldn't be lost in the details. And finally, concludes the Ramban, why should we be holy? Why should we be distinct? Because as a result of that, we could become similar to God. We could cleave to God and become similar to him. We could focus on developing our spirituality and connecting to our soul and thereby connecting to the Almighty. And I think for us, the challenge is to try to find that fine line between total abstinence, total celibacy, and restraint and self-control. We don't believe that all physicality is evil, and therefore we're not monastic, we are not celibate, but on the flip side, we have to learn to develop and hone our sense of restraint and our self-control. And maybe we could argue, you know, given that we've seen this Ramban, that maybe this is why Rashi tells us that this was said in front of everyone, because this verse really encapsulates the Bottom line goal of Torah, that is to be holy and to be similar to God. Now, another important point that is deduced from this Ramban, and he tells us that if we did not have this verse to be holy, we would think that you could be a heathen, to be a glutton with the permission of Torah. 
But now that we do have this verse, now that the Torah told us, be holy because God's holy, and that means to follow all the unwritten rules, then those unwritten rules have in fact been written in this verse. Okay, so that's the introduction to our parsha, And then it begins a rapid fire of mitzvos uh, from the beginning of the parsha, essentially all the way to the end, but mo- most pronounced in chapter 19. Now, there's another amazing Ramban here. The Ramban quotes a midrash that tells us that in these first 20 or so verses of this chapter, you can find hints for all 10 commandments. Really interesting. So it begins, every man you should fear your mother and your father and observe my Shabbos. So why does it say mother and then father? Rashi points out that if you look at the Ten Commandments, it tells us that you should honor your father and your mother. So the father precedes the mother. Whereas here, when it says to fear your parents, it says fear your mother, and then it says your father. So who comes first, the father or the mother? So it says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, that with respect to honor, when someone is more inclined to honor their mother, it says honor your father and then your mother. Whereas with respect to fear, where a person is more inclined to fear their father, he's more the, the dominant figure, the figure that commands fear and respect, it says it the opposite, fear your mother and your father. What's the connection between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse? What's the connection between fearing your parents and observing Shabbos? So Rashi tells us that even though there's a mitzvah to fear your parents, that cannot override, that cannot supersede your fear of God. Meaning, if God, if your parents tell you to desecrate the Shabbos, then you may not do that. Why? Because you and your parents are both subject to the will of God, and therefore your father's instruction cannot override the instruction given to you by the Almighty. The next verse continues, Do not turn to the idols and molten God you shall make for yourselves. I am Hashem, your God. What does it mean not to turn to the idols? So the Ibn Ezra tells us it means not even to look at them. There is a prohibition here in the Torah to gaze or to examine or to scrutinize the foreign gods. So maybe if you're passing a church, you don't need to admire its architecture. But there's a very deep Rashi here. Rashi points out that if you look at the Hebrew of this verse, it says, Al tifnu el ha'elilim, so the first word to describe the foreign gods is Elilim. And in the continuation of the verse, it says, and molten gods you shall make for yourself, it says, masicha lo lo So it switches the name of the foreign gods. Initially, it's called Elilim, and then it's called Elohei Masicha. So why does the verse switch the name, the Hebrew name, accorded to the foreign god? So Rashi tells us a fascinating insight. Number one, when it starts off, it's el elilim, meaning in Hebrew what that means, el means nothing, and el means God. So it's not a God. It's a nothing. It's a non-entity. Initially, when someone begins their foray, so to speak, into idolatry, the truth is the God has no value. But what happens once they do immerse themselves in the ways of idolatry, in effect, they're granting it legitimacy. So it begins with elil, which means it's nothing, but after you accord it some value, it 
begins to absorb some value and then it's upgraded to a elohut, so to speak. It does, it is given some value. So what Rashi is telling us, a very deep insight, that something that really is nothing, that really has no legitimacy, has no value, when legitimacy is accorded to it, when it is granted some legitimacy in the eyes of people, it kind of gets upgraded in their mind and something which is really nothing becomes something. So we have to be very careful not to, on our own, upgrade the foreign gods that we, so to speak, have in our life. The parasha continues with talking about various prohibitions with respect to offering sacrifices. So we read in verse 5, two separate laws. Number one, not to slaughter with the intention of eating a peace offering outside the permitted time frame. There is uh, two days that you're allowed to eat it, but if you have intention to eat it on the third day, then you cannot even eat it the first two days. That's considered a piggle. It's rejected. In addition, there is another instruction that we, when we slaughter that particular sacrifice, it has to be slaughtered with active intention. If someone slaughters it and they're, they're just practicing, they're not actively thinking about fulfilling the mitzvah and offering the sacrifice, then that becomes invalid. And then verse 9 and 10, we read about various gifts that are given to the poor. So first we read about the payoff. If someone has a farm, they have to leave the corner of the field unharvested and give it to the poor. So the poor are allowed to come harvest that corner of the field. We read about leket. Leket is when someone is collecting their harvest and one or two of the stalks fall then you're not allowed to retrieve it to leave it for the poor to collect. Whereas if three stocks fall, that's significant enough that you could collect it yourself. In addition, we read about the underdeveloped grapes that don't form into clusters. Those must be left for the poor to harvest. And finally, the fallen fruit of the vineyard is likewise given to the poor. And then the Parsha continues with all kinds of interpersonal laws how we have to treat other people. So it begins verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deny falsely. You shall not lie to one another. We have to be honest with our dealings with other people. Now, when it says over here not to steal, Rashi points out that in the Ten Commandments, when it says don't steal, it refers to kidnapping, not to steal souls. Whereas over here, when it refers to not to steal, it refers to not stealing in a covert way, in a hidden way, to not steal surreptitiously money or possessions from other people. And then it says not to swear falsely, not to cheat your friend. So if you have an employee, you cannot withhold his wages. It continues not to steal in an overt way. So there's two separate ways of stealing money, either in a hidden way or in a revealed way, like a mugger. That's another prohibition. Don't delay in paying your day laborers. If you have someone that does work for you and they're supposed to be paid every day, you cannot pay them late. You have to pay them right away. Don't curse a deaf person. Don't place a stumbling block before the blind. So if there's someone who's blind, you could just stick something in their path and they'll trip over it. But Rashi tells us this refers not only to actually tripping a blind person, but also anyone that is blind, quote-unquote, to any area, they're ignorant of that area, don't give them bad advice in which the recipient is blind to, 
in a way that you'll benefit from it. So someone is not sure about this investment and you and you to give them bad advice, but they'll never know. Don't give them such advice. Don't place a stumbling block before the blind. And that verse, which is verse 14, it concludes, you shall fear Hashem your God, I am Hashem. Meaning, Rashi tells us that God, of course, knows what we're thinking. And therefore, even though other people don't know, he does know and we cannot hide our true intentions from him. Don't corrupt judgment, neither by favoring the poor, nor by favoring the rich. There may be someone who's rich and powerful. You may say, you know what, I kind of have to, as a judge, I have to kind of favor them because after all, they're rich and powerful. That, of course, is corruption. But even if I'm favoring the poor, the less fortunate, that too is corruption of judgment. And there's a very deep counterintuitive point here. When someone's poor, we may feel like there's an injustice here. Why is this person poor and that person rich? And, and today in, in, in modern society, there's a term called income inequality, which seems to imply that in a fair world, there will be income equality. We don't believe that. We believe that the Almighty is in charge of determining what people get and how much they get. And therefore, when someone has a lot and his neighbor has a little, we say, well, that's the act of God. God determined who should have what and how much they should have. And therefore, me coming to right the wrong, me coming to even the balance, me coming to create equality is in effect me saying, I don't believe in God. I'm rejecting what he did. He did something wrong, so to speak. I'm going to fix what is corrupted. And that's the problem. The problem is that I can't do that in a way that goes against the Torah because in effect what I'm doing when I try to right that wrong is that I'm rejecting God's oversight and God's justice. And the verse concludes, you should judge with righteousness. So don't pervert it, not this way, not that way, judge with righteousness. Rashi tells us this also means to judge other people Favorably, If you see someone who's behaving in an ambiguous way and you could either view it charitably that maybe they're doing something righteous or you could, you could judge them negatively, judge them favorably. And of course, there's many stories about this and one particular one in the Talmud that I always like to share when we talk about judging favorably. This is the Talmud, the book of Shabbos 127b. It gives a story regarding someone who was, in a superlative way, judging other people favorably. And that was a story of a man who was hired to work for three years. And he was hired for three years, and it's the day before Yom Kippur, and he's finished all his work, and now he comes to his boss, and he asks for payment. And he says, okay, I've worked for three years, pay me what I've earned. So he says, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. He says, no, no problem. I'll take fruits and I'll sell the fruits and I'll, no problem. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any fruits. No problem. I'll take land. I'll take property. Give me some real estate. I'll sell that and that'll be my payment. Sorry, I don't have real estate. Well, give me livestock. I don't have livestock. Well, give me pillows and blankets that I can sell. I don't have that either. And the boss was an astonishingly rich person, and yet he claimed to be totally in poverty, totally destitute. So what does the man do? He has no choice. With tremendous disappointment, 
he just goes home empty-handed. And after, of course, Yom Kippur comes, it's the holiday of Sukkot, and he finishes it with his family. And after the festival's over, he has someone, his old boss, arrives, and he has with him three donkeys that are laden with all kinds of goodies, one with food and one with drink and one with all kinds of goodies. And he comes to him and they eat and they drink and he pays him the money and then he recounts their conversation. And he says to him, well, what did you think when I told you I don't have any money? What did you suspect? So the laborer responded, I suspected, well, maybe you had a cheap deal. You had a business initiative that was available and you used all your cash on that. Well, okay. Well, when I said I don't have any livestock, well, maybe you – I thought maybe you lent it out to some of the people. Well, when I said you had no you had no property, what did you suspect? I said, well, maybe you gave it to sharecroppers. And when I said I have no fruits, well, what do you suspect? Well, I said, well, maybe I suspected that maybe that you didn't give tithing for it. And when I said I don't have pillows and blankets, what do you suspect? I said, well, maybe you made a donation of all your possessions to the temple. So each one of these items that the person said they don't have, even though on the surface they appear to be incredibly wealthy, the person, the laborer, judged them favorably. And he concludes and he says to them, you know what? I'm swearing on the Torah that indeed everything that you said was true. I donated all my, my money to the temple coffers because my son, he wasn't studying Torah properly. And eventually I had that vow annulled. And just like you judged me favorably, may the Almighty judge you favorably. And the backstory of this interesting exchange is that we actually know the identity of these people the owner, the boss, was the great Rabbi Eliezer, who was one of the greatest sages of the era. And his laborer was someone who at the time was a total ignoramus, but someone who did have sterling character. And that is, of course, the great Rabbi Akiva, who began his life as a simpleton, but a simpleton nonetheless with great sterling character, character traits, judging other people favorably. And he, of course, became the greatest sage of his era, a student of Rabbi Eliezer, and, of course, the primary individual responsible for transmitting the oral Torah to the next generation when everyone came after the great sages in that era. Now, incidentally, there is a line from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, he talks about the story of King David. King David, he had an episode with Bathsheba, where technically he was allowed to take this woman, but really it was improper because she was someone else's. And scripture tells us that the prophet Nathan came to rebuke David for his activities, and he rebuked him in an indirect manner. He said to him a story about a man, two men of the city, or oh, there's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had all kinds of sheep and cattle. The poor man had only one small animal, and the rich man came and kind of seized the animal from the poor man. So David got all mad and says, that person has to die. And then the prophet Nathan told him, well, you're that man because you had everything 
and this other guy, Uriah, had nothing, just one, his wife, and you took it from him. So the Baal Shem Tov said that how are, pe- how are people going to be judged in the future? They're not going to be judged by some independent council. They themselves are going to be their own judge. But they're going to be given a picture of someone else, as if it's kind of a straw man, as if it's someone else who did the sin, who did the crime, and they're going to be forced to judge someone else. And exactly how they judge someone else is how they themselves are be- going to be judged because that other story that's presented to them is a replica of what they themselves did. And however they choose to judge others, that's how they indeed will be judged. So another important law here, and that is to be righteous with how we judge people, both as an actual judge in a court, but also in the court of how people view each other and how we ascribe righteousness or wickedness to other people's behavior. Verse 16, you should not be a gossip mongerer among your people and don't stand idly when your brother's blood is being shed. I am Hashem. So this is referring to someone who speaks Lashon Hara, who speaks slander or gossip, who's a peddler of gossip. Larashi tells us, don't speak evil about other people and don't stand idly when your brother's blood is being shed. So Rashi tells us, what does that mean? If you see someone drowning, or if he's someone being attacked by uh, by robbers, by animals, don't stand idly and do nothing. Try to save them. What is the connection between these two parts of the verse? So perhaps we could say that, of course, we are encouraged, we are exhorted to not speak Lashon Hara, to not speak evilly about other people. However, we cannot do that if our brother's blood is going to be shed, meaning that if someone's about to engage in a business relationship or even a marital relationship with another person, and we know damning information about the person that they're going to hitch their wagons to, we cannot stand idly when our brother's blood is being shed. We have to speak Lashon In that instance, we have to inform the party that this is probably a bad idea, this person's a crook, this person has bad character, whatever it may be, we cannot stand idly. In that instance, that's a time where we must share the negative information to prevent the catastrophe from happening. Don't hit your brother in your heart. You shall reprove your fellow and not bear sin because of him. So verse 17, really interesting verse here. Don't hit your brother in your heart. You shall surely reprove your fellow and don't bear a sin as a result of him. So what are these what is, so what does this mean? What does it mean to not hate your fellow? So the Talmud tells us it means don't go three days without speaking to someone. What does it mean to hate someone? It means the parameters of that are that if someone that you're normally accustomed to speaking to and you go three days and you don't speak to them for three days because you're mad at them, that already renders you someone who hates them. And that's a problem. You cannot hate your brother in your heart. But these three parts of this verse don't seem to really have a connection. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Reprove your brother and don't bear a sin as a result of that. Rashi tells us that not to bear a sin because of him means to not whiten their face publicly, not to, to not embarrass them. But the three portions of the verse don't seem to be connected. So there's an amazing Rambam in the Laws of Knowledge, chapter 6, law 5, where he connects these three parts of the verse in a very beautiful way. 
So he tells us the beginning part of the verse, don't hate your fellow, your fellow Israelite, your brethren in your heart. If you hate someone internally, then you are transgressing a prohibition. If someone, if I hate someone, but I tell him I hate you, maybe it's a problem, but I'm not actually transgressing this verse. It's only when I harbor the feelings of hatred, but I don't share it to them. The Ram tells us, don't silently absorb the misdeeds of others. We don't believe in turning the other cheek. No, when someone sins to you, don't just absorb it silently. In fact, you should respond. How do you respond? That's the next part of the verse. You shall reprove him, rebuke him. It's a mitzvah, second mitzvah, to inform them and say to them, why did you do this to me? Why did you sin to me in this manner? And if the person indeed accepts your rebuke and says, you know what, please forgive me, then, says the Ramam, don't be cruel, accept their apologies and forgive them. And then he goes on to elaborate on the parameters of rebuke. Once you see your friend sinning or going in an improper path, it is a mitzvah for you to restore them to the proper path and to inform them that they are sinning, and they're sinning to themselves, in fact, with their evil deeds. However, how do you indeed rebuke your fellow? If you just run over to them and say, I think you're a terrible guy, you're you're acting so immorally, it's probably not going to be efficacious. Instead, says the Rambam, the first thing is that you have to rebuke them in private, just between you two. And you speak to him pleasantly, in a soft manner. And you explain to them that the only reason I'm telling this is to you is for your own benefit, so that you should arrive to Olam Abba. And if they accept it, if they accept the rebuke, fantastic. But if not, you rebuke them a second time, a third time, you consistently rebuke it. And you're obligated, says the Ramam, to rebuke them until the person gets so sick of you and hits you and says, I will never change. Only at that point are you absolved from responsibility to rebuke them for their misdeeds. Now, what if someone has the ability to rebuke others, but they don't do it? Then, says the Rambam, again, quote from the Talmud, and you are complicit in their sin, and there's a portion of their sin that is ascribed to you. And then the Rambam brings in the third part of the verse. And he tells us that when you rebuke someone, don't do it in a way that you'll embarrass them. Don't whiten their face with shame when you embarrass them because then you're trying to do a mitzvah, but in fact you're doing a sin because you're embarrassing your fellow by rebuking him either in a public way or in a way that's going to cause him pain. And don't give him a nickname. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us if you whiten your fellow's face publicly, you lose your portion in Olam Abba. He quotes the other Talmud that says that we cannot even embarrass someone, even if it means potentially giving up our own lives, we have to rebuke them in a sensitive way, in a respectful way, in a way that will actually prompt them to rectify their ways. What if the person is not capable of hearing your rebuke? Well, in that case, it's a mitzvah, it's a ways of the pious, says the Rambam, to forgive them silently, forgive them in your heart, and not rebuke them. So an amazing mitzvah here, and that is to not hate your fellow in your heart, but instead to try to resolve the underlying cause for that friction by telling them in a very gentle way, but maybe in a firm way as well, that their activities, that their actions are improper, and to try to coach them to rectify their ways.
Verse 18, maybe the most famous verse in the whole Torah, don't take revenge and don't bear a grudge against members of your people. You shall love your fellow as yourself. I am Hashem. So first of all, the verse begins with two different words for revenge. Don't take revenge and don't bear a grudge. Rashi explains that these are two different kinds of revenge. The first kind of revenge is when someone does something bad to you, you do something bad to them in response. The second kind of revenge, which is bearing a grudge, is someone does something bad to you, and you don't do something bad to them in response. You say to them, I'm not going to do something bad to you in response. I'm not like you. And that shows that even though you're not behaving in a vengeful manner, but you're still bearing a grudge, you're still angry at them, you haven't forgiven them. Both of them are prohibited by Torah law. Now, the commentaries tell us, so the Chinuch, for example, tells us, that revenge is illogical and lacks faith. Why? Someone does something bad to you. In essence, we believe that the Almighty allowed that to happen and maybe even caused that to happen. And therefore, the person does something bad to you and you think they're the perpetrator, but in reality, they're just the tool that God used to punish you. And therefore, if you get angry at that person, in effect, you're not taking the lesson that God's trying to convey to you and you're misattributing the source of your misery to the person when, in fact, God's trying to send you a message. So, in effect, when someone takes revenge, it is a lack of faith because they don't realize that it's God who's acting, not that individual. That's one theme of this idea, not take revenge. The Rambam tells us something fascinating. He says, when someone does something bad to you and you take revenge, it's prohibited and it's a very terrible thing and you should forgive them because reality is that when someone does something bad to you in this world, this world after all, it's trivial. The only thing that really matters is the spiritual world, the world that we're trying to earn via our behavior. And therefore, it's not worthy for me to take revenge when someone does a bad to me here. Take revenge because then I'm ascribing value to this world. And the Kliyaka, one of the commentaries in the Torah, tells us an analogy, a, a parable of children. Children are playing. They're playing with blocks. They're playing with balls. And what happens, and this is common, I would say, in, in households with more than one child, one child builds a nice Lego edifice, letter structure, and the other one comes and kicks it down. So what happens to the first child? They go crazy. They start crying. They, they, they start screaming. And they start getting violent, start fighting back. And he goes so as far as to say that if they had a weapon, they would shoot their brother. That's how angry they get. And the parent, of course, realizes, you know what? It wasn't nice what the child did to you, but it's not worthy doesn't merit, doesn't justify that you go after and attack them, you hit them, you kill them even if you had a weapon. Because you realize that, you know, there's proportionality. This is a child's game, some Lego. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's something that you're playing with, but it's not the end of the world. That's what it's like with with us. You know, we're, we're like children, really, and with respect to God. God's our father and we're like children. And we get consumed with this world. Someone does something bad to you. You know, they cheat you in business, whatever it may be. And we get so riled up and angry about it, but God's telling us we're like children with respect to him. 
this is all trivial. It doesn't really matter so much. It's not worthy to get so angry and to try to lash back at them. So two ways to understand this idea of what it means not to take revenge, even though we may be deeply inclined to do it. And revenge is a dish best served cold. And even the Messiah Sharm, the path of the just, the way of the upright, tells us in chapter 11 that revenge is sweeter than honey. Still, it's prohibited and we should not do it. And the verse concludes, you shall love your fellow as yourself. Rashi quotes the saying of Rabbi Akiva, this is a major principle of Torah. The Talmud tells us, the book of Shabbat, page 31a, there was a potential convert came to the great Hillel. I want to study all of Torah while balancing, while balancing on one leg. He says to him a reformulation of this verse, that the you hate don't do to your fellow, which is again a reformulation of this verse. That's all of Torah. Everything else is commentary. So obviously there's something very important here being conveyed in this mitzvah. And of course, there's a lot to talk about. But I think one of the most simple questions that we can ask is, well, Ami and my neighbor, my fellow, is someone else. How could I possibly love him as much as I love myself? Doesn't seem to be reasonable. So maybe there's a few ways to answer this. One of the ways is that when it says, love your fellow as yourself, it doesn't mean with the amount of quantity of love that you have to yourself, as much as yourself. It doesn't say as much as yourself. It says as yourself. And perhaps what it means is that just like when we have self-love, like all healthy people love themselves, they love themselves not because they were commanded to do so, not because there was a mitzvah to, to do so, just simply they love themselves because they love themselves. Don't love your fellow and say, you know what? I really can't stand the guy. But the Torah says it's a mitzvah to love them and I'm going to love them. No, you have to create, you have to foster genuine love for your brother just as you love yourself. Not as much, but just for the same reasons why you love yourself, you should love your brethren, your fellow. Maybe a more advanced answer to this question is found in the Talmud. You know, again, this verse doesn't seem to have necessarily a flow to it. Don't take revenge. Love your fellow as yourself. What's the connection between the first and second halves of this verse? So the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud in the book of Nadarim tells us that it gives us an analogy. It gives us an analogy of a butcher. A butcher was cutting meat, hacking away with a knife, and... By mistake, the knife wielded in his right hand slashed at his left hand. So now his left hand is injured. So the left hand grabs the knife and goes and slashes the right hand. I'm going to get revenge. That's what the Talmud says. That's revenge. In reality, the whole Jewish people were like one body. And therefore, it's not logical, it's asinine for me to take revenge because I'm just causing more self-harm. The person did something bad to me, but does it make sense to take my right with the, the, the take the the knife now back in my right hand and go attack the other hand, the perpetrating hand? That's what it means to take revenge. When we're told to not take revenge, we're told to recognize that our brother is really a part of me. And according to that Talmud, there is a natural continuity in the verse. Don't take revenge. It's not logical to take revenge because you're all parts of one whole. Love your fellow as yourself because indeed on a soul level, you too 
are really two parts of one whole and therefore it made sense to love your fellow as yourself because indeed they are part of you. An amazing insight from the Talmud. And then verse 19, you should observe my decrees. Don't mate your animal with another species. Don't plant your field with mixed seed. And a garment that is a mixture of combined fibers, don't mate for yourself. These are three forbidden mixtures. And Rashi tells us laws that don't necessarily make sense to us. Don't mix different species. Don't interbreed species. Don't plant different seeds next to each other. And don't wear garments woven out of wool and linen. There's a very interesting discussion here. Uh, the Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi seems to indicate that these mitzvos don't have a reason or, re- or at least not a reason that we could easily identify. And the Ramban says, of course, there is a reason, but some reasons are not revealed to us and some reasons are revealed to us. And the Ramban argues that when someone interbreeds species or fruits or vegetables, there's a reason for it. And he explains that the reason for not interbreeding is because, you know, when God created the world, he created with a certain amount of species and the species are supposed to replicate themselves and procreate and create new varieties of that same exact species. What happens when someone takes the horse, mates it with a donkey and creates the mule? In effect, what someone is saying is God did not create enough species when he created the world. I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to improve God's creation in Genesis. Of course, God did create a perfect world and therefore the meaning behind these or at least part of these mitzvos is to not improve on God's creation and to recognize that his creation is perfect the way it was. Of course, we have to improve ourselves because the objective of creation, but not to create new species that God did not create. If he didn't create it, obviously the function of the world can be accomplished without it. Verse 20 is a unusual and complicated case. It's talking about a woman who was a half-slave and half-freed, meaning she was a slave woman who was owned by two partners. One of them freed them. The other did not free them. And she gets married to a Jewish slave. So is this a complete marriage or an incomplete marriage? It's not a complete marriage because she's a, a mixed identity. And therefore, it talks about what if she were to commit adultery, with another person, it would not have the same severity as a fully married woman because she's not fully married. In verse 23, we read about Arla. It's a three-year moratorium on fruits. You plant a fruit tree. For the first three years, you don't eat it. The fourth year's fruits must be eaten in Jerusalem. And then in verse 25, we read that it's a divine promise that you won't lose. Don't think that by refraining from the first three years of the produce, you're going to lose out. God promises that you're not going to lose out. Verse 26, a very interesting verse. Lo tochlu al adam, don't eat over the blood. It's not clear what this means. Rashi tells us that there's many different meanings for this verse. And the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, tells us that this is an example of an inclusive verse, meaning one verse that has many different meanings. And the Talmud goes on to list six different laws that are derived from this one verse, don't eat upon the blood. Number one, if you kill an animal, but it is not yet dead, you cannot eat its meat, don't eat upon the blood. Number two, 
a sacrificial animal, if if it has not completed the ritual processing, you cannot eat it. Number three, a Jewish court of law that has rendered a ruling, a guilty verdict in a capital punishment case, they cannot eat the rest of the day, don't eat upon the blood. In addition, we don't have a meal of consolation after someone has been executed in a Jewish court of law. And finally, this is the restriction. This is the Torah prohibition against behaving like a Ben Soromor, behaving like a wayward rebellious son, a law that we'll read about in the book of Deuteronomy. The next verse tells us not to engage in sorcery, not to be superstitious, don't practice divination, don't believe in luck, or that certain times are auspicious. We read about the Torah's guidance to hair and beard maintenance. We're not allowed to round out the corners of our head, the idea of payas, that we leave uh, our side lots unshorn to not allow a contiguous line from our forehead to the back of our head and not to shave with a razor the five points of the beard. So, which is why if you want to shave, and you want to do it according to halachic standards, you must use an electric shaver, meaning a, a shaver in which the blade does not touch the skin. Because if you do shave with a an actual blade or a razor, then every single hair is a separate prohibition. Instead, we should use an electric shaver instead. We're told that we cannot cause a wound, a self-wound over the dead, not to make a tattoo, the Sephora, one of the commentaries, tells us that there's only one permanent side in our body, and that is, of course, the circumcision, to not give off your daughter for illicit activities, to have reverence for the temple, to not walk in with your shoes on or with dirty feet, to not seat the clairvoyance of the necromancers of Ove and Yedoni. These are different forms of necromancy. The ove is someone who speaks out of his armpit. The yodoni is someone who puts the bone of a certain animal into his mouth. The bone speaks for him. Uh, verse 32, to, to have reverence for old sages, to get up for them, for them uh, when they walk in the room. Uh, number 33, verse 33, don't tease the convert. Someone who joined our religion, we're told an additional mitzvah to love them and not to taunt them. And the commentaries note that, of course, all of our Jewish brethren we can't tease, but it's repeated twice uh, for the convert because the convert doesn't have defenders. You know, they're they're outsiders. They may feel like they don't really have a place, and therefore the Torah has to be their defender. In addition, with a convert who grew up with a different religion and they made the decision to join Judaism, they're liable to defect, to go back to their roots if they find their new religion inhospitable. So therefore, we're told an additional warning to not alienate them. And in fact, we're told to empathize with them. We too were foreigners. We too were outsiders in the land of Egypt, and therefore we should empathize with them. And in fact, this is not limited to someone who converts and joins our religion, but any sort of outsider, we all know the feeling of what it's like to be the odd man out, to be the new kid in the block, to be the new kid in the stool, and we should identify with what those people are going through and empathize with them. Be honest in measurements. If you're selling someone a pound of fruits, make sure it's really a pound, not 0.98 pounds. And again, we're told, I am a Shemir God, even though other people may not necessarily be able to pick up on your cheating, on your chicanery. Hashem knows, He knows, the Almighty knows, and therefore, 
he will exact retribution if we cheat in a way that he could find out about it, meaning if we cheat in any way. Chapter 20 is dedicated to the punishments of various sins. And a general precept of Torah is that for anyone to be punished, they have to have a a transgression, meaning the verses tell us that this is prohibited, and there has to be an, an additional verse or additional insinuation or implication in the verse of the nature of the punishment. So it begins with the molach. Molach we read about last week. That's someone who offers their children to the idol. We have to pursue them. God will pursue them. We're told the punishment for necromancy. Uh, we're told the punishment of cursing your parents. Even if your parent are, has been deceased, cursing them is a capital offense. Adultery is a capital offense. Uh, all the various prohibited sexual unions and their punishment. I talked about bestiality, that God forbid if someone sleeps with an animal, both the perpetrator and the animal are put to death. Why is the animal put to death? After all, the animal has no free will. So if the person sinned, why did the animal sin? So Rashi quotes the Talmud that the reason why we kill the animals because the animal caused a stumbling block for the person. And therefore, Rashi tells us, an animal does not have any free will, yet it is punished if it causes others to sin. How much more so must we be careful? We do have free will. We have to make sure that we don't cause other people to sin. The Talmud adds an additional reason as to why the animal is executed in a case where a human decided to do the egregious sin of sleeping with it, and that is... The reason why we kill the animal is to prevent additional shame for the perpetrator. The person may have committed a very shameful and egregious sin and they're executed for it. But every time that animal walks down the block, everyone reinvokes their sin. And that's punishment that they're not deserving of. And therefore, that punishment they don't get. And after listing all the forbidden relationships, it once again reverts back to the theme of the end of last week's parasha. You shall observe all my decrees and all my ordinances and perform them. Then, if you observe the law, the land to which I will bring you will not disgorge you. Do not follow the traditions of the nations that I expel from before you. They did all these things. I was disgusted with them and the land vomited them out. You too, I'm telling you, you're going to inherit the land. I'm going to give it to you, a land flowing with milk and honey. But you have to be separate. You have to be distinct from the ways of those other people. You should be distinguished between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean. Don't render your souls abominable through such animals and birds. Don't eat non-kosher. And be separate from the nations. There's an interesting Rashi here in verse 26, the verse says, You shall be holy for me, for I, Hashem, am holy. I have separated you from the people to be mine. There's a very interesting Rashi here, a very interesting conversation here. Rashi quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that a person should not say, I'm disgusted by non-kosher food. I don't want to wear shotness. Instead, what they should say is, you know what? I'm sure pork is delicious. I'm sure bacon's delicious. But I'm sorry, I cannot have it because the Almighty forbade it for me. Very interesting idea. Should we be desirous of cheeseburgers? 
or should we be disgusted by it? Here we're told that we should be desirous and say, you know what? We have a desire, but it's not for us because the Almighty forbade it for us. The Rambam, in his introduction to the book of Perte Avos, the chapters of the fathers, he tells us that it really depends. With laws that we don't know the reason for them, like forbidden foods, wearing shotness, etc., those things we have to say, you know what, we're desirous of it, but we can't do it because God said no. Whereas by laws that make sense to us, laws like the seven Noahide laws that we would obey, even if God did not tell us about them, those things we have to be disgusted by. We can't say, oh, I really want to steal. I really want to murder. I really want to do things that are, that are evil and immoral by any society. Those things we should not be desirous of. That said, there are still those people that felt disgusted by non-kosher food. My grandfather shared a story about his Rebbe, his teacher, the great Rebbe Rucham Levavitz of the Mir. He says he was once on vacation. He had to go for health purposes and he was in a, a lodging that had in the same facility was a non-Jew. And the non-Jew was frying pork. And the great rabbi smelled it and started vomiting. He wasn't able to at all bear the smell of that forbidden and disgusting food from his perspective. Uh, I think regardless, it's a very deep insight that we should at least adopt the notion that some things are delightful, something are desirous. We would love to do them, but we can't because the Almighty said no. So that's a wrap. Parshas Kedoshim, be holy. Uh, an amazing list of ways for us to become holy, mitzvahs that we have in the Torah. Thank you for listening. Again, the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I look forward to studying next week's Parsha, Parshas Emor, together with you all.